Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we get a two for one. Professor Aude Couturier from the University of Paris Cité will share her expertise in macular holes. And Dr. Yves Lashkar from Hôpital Saint-Joseph in Paris will discuss glaucoma in highly myopic patients. That discussion is chaired by Professor David Gaucher from the University of Strasbourg and Professor Joost Jonas from the Medical Faculty Mannheim of Heidelberg University. Before we hear that, though, our next Uretina educational webinar will be on the 19th of June at 8pm CEST. Professor Eduardo Midena and Professor Renier Schlingemann will chair a webinar looking at new insights in diabetic retinopathy. They'll be joined by Professor Jennifer Sun from Harvard, who will give us the news from the drcr.net protocol, and also Dr. Maria Cristina Paravano from the Bietti Foundation, who will discuss imaging progression biomarkers in type 1 diabetes. So a packed hour of updates on diabetic eye disease, 8 p.m. CEST, Monday 19th of June. Registration is now open on the Uretina website. And later in June, Professor Frank G. Holtz and Professor Anat Lowenstein will be hosting a webinar on AI-based developments in retinal imaging and support in clinical decision-making. This is surely a timely webinar to reflect on where we are with AI in image analysis and its clinical applications. They'll be joined by an international faculty, and of course, you're welcome to ask questions and make observations with the audience Q&A. The AI in Imaging for Clinical Decision-Making webinar will be on June 28th at 8 p.m. CEST. Registration also open now on the Uretina website. All right, on to our discussion on macular holes and glaucoma in myopia. Our chairs are Professors David Gaucher and Joost Jonas. David, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Oh, thank you very much for accepting uh, this invitation and to answer the question about myopic uh, macular holes. I think everybody knows that there's a, a big difference uh, between emetropic macular holes and highly myopic patients who present myopic uh, macular holes. Maybe you can tell us more about, for instance, when you diagnose a macular hole in a highly myopic patient, do you have a different management from a macular hole in a metropic patient, maybe in terms of indication? Yes, uh, absolutely. We know that in emetropic eyes, uh, usually macular hole has a really um, a clear presentation with a visual loss and patient really feels a visual loss due to the macular hole uh, has an acute uh, phenomenon. In highly myopic eyes, there is a um, wider variability in the presentation and uh, of the symptoms of the macular holes. Some macular holes may be absolutely uh, asymptomatic and are diagnosed only on OCT, um, either because they are uh, parafoveal or, uh, or sometimes also because they are in area of atrophy. So that's why uh, in this case, sometimes observation can be uh, proposed in case with no visual uh, loss or in case of no chance of visual recovery because uh, the hole is in a atrophic area. Of course, in these cases, we will propose a close follow-up because there is a risk of uh, retinal detachment in the posterior pole. That is also a, a difference from the emetropic highs. 
on another way, there is also uh, some uh, cases that will require a more uh, rapid surgery, for example, the macular hole that are associated with those cases with uh, uh, subretinal uh, detachment maybe uh, will require more rapid surgery, as well as uh, macular holes that are already associated with a posterior retinal detachment. So the, the presentation of the macular hole is, varies more widely in uh, highly myopic eyes, and that's why the indications can vary compared to emetropic eyes. Is the visus uh, important in your indication for surgery? Because some uh, myopic macaroles can see uh, because they can fix in the uh, extrafoveal uh, center. Uh, yeah, uh, of course, I think the visual acuity is always a parameter we have to take into account. So if, if the macular hole is uh, really far from the center or if it's in, in the area of atrophy that we, we can have such a case and the patient is really asymptomatic, uh, maybe in that case observation can be proposed. But uh, we also have to propose surgery in a case with a macular hole uh, that feel um, a disturbance in their vision and where we can uh, maybe provide better visual acuity or better fixation with surgery. Thank you. Do you think the, the physiopathology of myopic macular hole is uh, the same that the, the ones in the metropic eyes? Is it all about traction? I think there is, there is probably different pathophysiology. Has uh, in emetropic eyes, there is really an acute phenomenon of uh, due to the posterior uh, detachment of the, the posterior yellowid. Uh, we know that almost all cases uh, in emetropic eyes are the posterior yellowid detach from um, the either the optic nerve or sometimes sometimes still attached uh, at the edge of the hole, but detached from the rest of the macula. So. There is this acute phenomenon of the PVD and the traction that lead to the uh, occurrence of the macular hole. While in a highly myopic eyes, it seems to be uh, quite different. A few years ago, with my colleague uh, Elise Filipakis and Professor Tadayoni, uh, we work on the rate of complete PVD in a highly myopic eyes with uh, various um, surgical retinal uh, diseases. And we were a little surprised to find that the rate of complete PVD was re really low, in fact, in eyes with uh, macular hole, uh, eye limopic eyes. Uh, we find that uh, up to 90% of the eyes don't have a complete PVD. And we confirm this, the presence of the complete PVD intraoperatively because sometimes uh, we can uh, have an error in the diagnosis of the status of the PVD if we only look at the slit lamp examination or at the OCT because um, the vitreous, um, the posterior yellowed can show some vitreous or sometimes it's only some remnants of the vitreous at the surface of the retina. So it seems that there is no clearly an acute phenomenon of PVD in the eye myopic heights, but maybe more a progressive and tensional um, contraction of the vitreous cortex layer at the surface of the retina. So it seems that there is a role of traction, obviously, but maybe not exactly the same than in emetropic highs. And there is also the role of the, the tension of, the, of sometimes the epiretinal membrane or uh, even of the ILM itself in the occurrence um, of the macular hole in ilimatic eyes. 
Just, uh, you know uh, very well the physiopathology uh, of uh, the progression of myopia in highly myopic eyes. Do you think there's a, a, a particular, a peculiar physiopathology in macular, myopic, high myopic uh, macular holes? Yeah, first, I do not know very well the physiology or pathophysiology, but if one starts with myopic maculoschisis and starts at the anatomy, a striking fact may be that the inner limiting membrane is firmly connected to the border of the optic disc, while post-membrane as a basis for the RPE and as basis for the photoreceptors can slip away from the border of the optic disc by a thinning and elongation of the parapapillary border tissue of the choroid, which connects the end of post-membrane to the border of the optic disc. And this leads to the development of gamma zone. Now, if one has, for example, a posterior staphyloma, which leads to a longer circumference of the macular region, postmembrane can easily follow it because it moves away from the optic disc border. The inner limiting membrane cannot because it is firmly connected to the optic disc border and probably it is not elastic. This way may lead to a washing line effect with the inner limiting membrane moving into the more into the inner part of the eye. The photoreceptors remain to the RPE connected to the postmembrane and between the retinal layers a strain develops leading to maculoschisis. If that is valid, then the question is if such a development for maculoschisis may also play a role in macular holes in highly myopic eyes, which not quite rarely are associated with a maculoschisis. Concerning the surgery, um, Ode, uh, in a myopic macular hole, do you use ileum flap or amniotic membrane or any other adjuvant treatment for a primary surgery? Uh, thank you, David, for this question. It's clear that the management of the macular hole in high myopic eyes is more challenging than in emetropic eyes. So I think the first step is really to uh, be sure that we have removed all the vitreous remnants at the surface of the retina. So I usually uh, use some uh, some dyes, some such as um, triamcinolone, to visualize the remnants of the vitreous cortex. This is the first step, and then to peel any uh, epiretinal membrane, or uh, on also to peel the ILM to be sure to have removed all the part that can produce this tension at the surface of the retina, uh, just uh, as explained before. And so uh, I think that first a large ILM peeling is uh, also a key for um, successful surgery. Um, personally, I uh, also use the ILM flap technique um, because um, some studies show a superior rate for closer rate of macular hole with this technique compared to only ILM peeling. Um, but I, I know that there is still some controversies about this technique. And um, I think what is really important is uh, to be uh, very careful in the in the ILM peeling and try not to do some damage to the to the retina and, uh, of course, to the RPE uh, during the maneuvers. So I, I don't put the ILM flap inside the macular hole, but only just leave a, a flap uh, at the surface of the hole, but not trying to, to, to put it inside. 
And uh, I think also if uh, using other technique uh, to to fill the hole, like uh, amniotic membrane uh, or, or other uh, uh, technique to, to fill the hole, uh, makes sense in this um, eye myopic eyes with uh, maybe um, uh, macular holes that are not uh, closed by the first surgery. Um, but still, this um, the tissue that we put to fill the hole should uh, not cover the edge of the hole because usually the edge of the hole can be uh, also um, uh, good for the patient to see or to have a fixation. Um, so that is just the point about the, the technique to fill the hole, just to, to, to be careful. Thank you very much. Maybe we'll pass to the other topic of the evening. Uh, just maybe you can uh, take over. <laughs> yes, um, if it's very nice uh, to participate in this meeting. My first question is, which examinations do you think are useful to diagnose glaucoma, glaucoma in highly myopic eyes? I know this is quite a tricky question. Yes, thank you very much, Just. It's a very tricky question. But I think that it's as every glaucoma we need to analyze a lot of parameters because every parameters only could be a huge problem to diagnose the glaucoma. So we need to have the intraocular pressure, of course, but especially in high myopic eye, we need to, to analyze the corneal ventral thickness and to analyze both the intraocular pressure and corneal ventral thickness. And the other one main examination that we should do in every high myop is probably the visual field. Because as you know, it's very difficult to analyze the optic nerve is high myopic high. And optic nerve evaluation, it's sometimes very difficult and we don't know if there is a glaucoma or not. But if we combine intraocular pressure, corneal frontal sickness, OCT, visual field, progression of all these parameters, plus, of course, a gonioscopy to check if there is no pigmentary glaucoma, it's more or less not as difficult as it should be to diagnose the glaucoma in eye myopic eye. But what do you do if the eye has minus 20 diopters, has myopic macular degeneration of a stage 3, which extrafoveal patchy atrophies, and an enlarged optic disc? And the patient says he sees some visual, some reduction in visual quality. So I think it's uh, if the intraocular pressure is uh, normal and with the normal corneal ventral thickness, I think it's probably better to treat this patient to avoid glaucoma progression because we know that high myopic and myopia is an important risk factor for glaucoma. And I think it's probably important to treat this patient and to avoid uh, glaucoma progression in the, in the future. Because in my practice, for instance, most blind patients are mainly high myopic eye with the glaucoma deterioration and awful visual field. Yeah, I also would fully agree. And perhaps one can tell the patient there is not yet an evidence-based study showing the uh, benefit of IOP reduction, but if the IOP-reducing drugs are well tolerated, the risk of therapy may be lower than the risk of not doing therapy. Would you consider a peripheral visual field constriction as sign for optic nerve damage or glaucomatous optic nerve damage in highly myopic eyes? I think it's important to analyze the visual field 
because most important is if it's a diffuse visual field, if there is just an enlargement of the Marriott, it's not a, a sign of glaucoma. But if the deficit is on the gray room or on the nasal step, or if it's a parafoveal deficit, it could be considered as a glaucoma deficit and it should be treated. And it's very important that every high myop should have a visual field in his evaluation. It is very important to do a visual field in this patient, even so it's sometimes it could be difficult to diagnose glaucoma in this type of patient. But the visual field is crucial in evaluation and also uh, with OCT. Dave, are there any morphological biomarkers of the optic nerve head or of the macula to indicate the presence of glaucoma in highly myopic eyes? I think it's a very, very interesting question because OCT is a very uh, useful tool. And there is a couple of things that we absolutely need to know. First of all, the fact that in high myopic, we have no normative database. So it's not a red disease on OCT or glaucoma in the high myopic eye. We know, for example, that um, with the OptoView, the cutoff is minus 8, it minus 12 with the Zeiss, minus 7 with Spectralis. So the OCT should tell us, I have no patient with minus 15 in my database. I cannot answer if it's red, yellow, or green. It's the first important thing if we want to analyze the RNFR. So if it's difficult to analyze glaucoma in high myopic eyes with RNFR, we can try to go further. First, A. Do we have parameters with OCTA show a good accuracy? And unfortunately not. OCA parameters show poor diagnostic accuracy for glaucoma in high myopic eye. The second one could be the ganglion cell complex. And is it possible to diagnose glaucoma in high myopic eye with the GCC? More or less yes or not, it could be an option in myopic eyes, meaning high myopic eye. The ability to diagnose glaucoma is difficult with the GCC thickness. So it could be also a problem. But if we try to have a multimodal approach, and if we try to combine, for instance, OCTA and microperimetry, it could be a tool to diagnose glaucoma in high myop. And the last could be the BMO, you know, the brush membrane opening. A couple of studies have shown that it could be an interesting tool for myopic high, but unfortunately, the detection of proof membrane opening in high myopic eye, it's very difficult because a significant proportion of high myopic eyes have indiscernible brush membrane opening. So it's difficult to diagnose glaucoma in high myopic eye with the BMO opening. More or less, if we try to combine all these parameters, it's not always the difficult to diagnose glaucoma because it's very important to take into account that the OCT can be used to assess glaucoma in optic nerve damage in more or less most eyes with high myopia. So we cannot say that 
it's always awful and it's not possible to use OCT in this patient. But if we combine all these parameters, it could be uh, possible to diagnose glaucoma in high myopic eye. Thank you very much. The other question would be, besides glaucomatous optic neuropathy, what is about non-glaucomatous optic nerve damage in highly myopic eyes? It's, it could be hidden because, as you know, there is a problem of vascularization of optic nerve. And that's why it's important in this kind of patient probably to over-treat, as we said previously, rather than to, uh, to, and to avoid blindness rather than not to treat because we say, no, we don't know, it could be not glaucomatous, we are not going to treat this patient, etc., etc. Because we know that in this kind of patient and with this kind of eyes, the vascularization of optic nerve is poor with a more a migraine, vasospasm, and all these parameters, and it could be a, a problem for this kind of patient. And I think that it's probably better to over-treat rather than to avoid uh, blindness in high myopic eye. Yes, I would also fully agree. My last question would be, is it useful to lower the intraocular pressure, for example, with laser trabeculoplasty in highly myopic eyes, with a glaucoma-like optic nerve morphology, even if the intraocular pressure is normal? The first problem is, what is the definition of normal intraocular pressure? It, we absolutely need to analyze the intraocular pressure with corneal focal thickness and also into account to diurnal fluctuation of intraocular pressure. But as you know, a certain proportion of patients have uh, IOP fluctuation also because uh, some myopic has would have in their life steroids as treatments for macula, for uh, after a cataract surgery. And we've known that uh, high myopic, it's a risk factor for high intraocular pressure under steroids. And we know that SLT, it's a very good option in steroid-induced glaucoma. So why not to avoid this IOP fluctuation, not to treat with SLT this kind of patient, even so if the trabecula is not very highly pigmented, but it's an option to avoid IOP fluctuation. Well, also from David, uh, Diaif and Ort, thank you very much for participating in this very interesting discussion. I think we have uh, learned a lot. Janusin, back to you, please. Excellently done, David, Joost, Ord, and Eve. Thank you so much for your expertise and your time on the podcast. We're almost done, but before I let you go, our next episode will be all about the Uretina Innovation Summit which will be debuting at this year's Uretina Congress. Hear all about the program and why you should go in our next episode. But for now, I'm Jonathan McRae. I'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.